Uh, Lord, we thank you for this time together. We thank you for your word. We thank you for um, your heart for us, Lord, that you diligently pursue us um, despite us, uh, God, even even when we mess up, even when you know you're, we're going to fall short, you desire communion with us, Lord, and, and I just pray that your love would just be so known uh, as we as we study this text, uh, that uh, you're, you're so perfect and you, you care so much for us and you want to be in relationship with us so desperately, God, and I pray that specifically with this message, we would uh, see your love for us and maybe a new light. In your name, amen. All right, so what we're going to see here in this text um, is, is Jesus <clears throat> is going to institute communion, okay? And, and he's going to institute communion in light of his foreknowledge of what's about to happen, meaning he knows Judas is going to betray him and he knows the disciples are going to abandon him. And in the midst of that knowledge, he establishes relationship. He establishes fellowship, even though he knows they are ultimately going to be disloyal to him. So the title of this teaching is communion despite disloyalty, communion despite disloyalty. If you would, with me, Uh, we'll read it in chunks and break it down. Matthew chapter 26, verse 17. It says, Now on the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying to him, Where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he said, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them. And they prepared the Passover. When evening had come, he sat down with the twelve. So, first day of unleavened bread. They're specifically referring to Passover. You should remember some of this if you were here when we taught on the Levitical feasts. Okay, I'm going to briefly go over different things just to remind you. Uh, but the Passover was instituted in Exodus chapter 12. Um, basically, uh, what it was, was the Lord, just before the Israelites exited Egypt, the Lord established this feast. And he said, this is what you're going to do. You're going to take uh, a firstborn unblemished lamb and you're going to sacrifice it you're going to take the blood you're going to put it on your doorpost and everyone who is marked by the blood of the lamb the angel of death will pass over that house now we know those who didn't have the blood uh, on their doorpost um, their firstborn would die okay and this was the final plague before the exodus now This is the ceremony, this is the feast, this is the festival that Jesus is celebrating with the disciples. And I'll get into it a little bit more in a moment. But, side notes, and this is something that I encourage you to study on your own. Um, The Synoptic Gospels, referring to Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Okay, there's four Gospels. The Synoptic Gospels are Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They uh, talk about a lot of the same things with slight differences. Uh, John's Gospel is not referred to as a Synoptic Gospel because it's very different. His focus is very different. The stories that he shares, some of them are in the Synoptic Gospels, but most of them aren't. They're unique. Uh, so anyways, regardless, in the synoptic gospels, we see all the synoptic gospel writers reference this night as the Passover, this being a Passover meal. OK, in John's gospel, specifically John 13, there's some indication he says that this is before the Passover. So 
if you study into some of this stuff, um, it, it gets like kind of confusing to understand the timeline. And there's a lot of different views about this specifically and helping make sense of how the Gospels all come together with this. Some say that they had uh, different traditions. Uh, the Sadducees and the Pharisees would celebrate Passover at a different time period in the day. Um, But when you put the two stories together, it's obvious that this is a Passover meal. This is a Seder dinner. And when you look at the timeline, it, 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 it it is on Passover and Jesus is going to die on Passover the same day. Remember, if you were here when we were studying the Levitical feast, uh, uh, the timeline a day is very different than what we look at as a day. The day starts when the sun goes down and the day continues until the next day until the sun goes down to again. It's not 12 a.m. to um, to 11:59 p.m. It's not days like we see days. And you'll see this. This will come up in a minute because they start this meal right when the sun comes down and then Jesus is going to die the next day. So this is obviously Passover. And that's what they're doing here. They go to a certain and to the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. Now, this certain man in the other gospels, we see uh, there's something else mentioned about him. How are they going to know this certain man? Well, he's going to be carrying a jug of water. And it's like there's probably a bunch of dudes carrying jugs of water. Not so. Actually, this was a job that typically women did. They would collect the water. They would go at a certain time in the morning, go together, collect the water, bring it back to their family. So a man carrying a jug of water would have been very unique. The disciples would have saw this. It would have stood out to them. Now, this man, we don't know who he is. He's not named, uh, but it appears that he's a good friend of Jesus to allow the disciples to have this Passover meal with uh, him at the house. Or at his house anyways. And it says in verse 20. When evening had come. He sat down with the twelve. So as I mentioned. Because they sat down. And had this Passover meal. Once the sun went down. When evening had come. He's going to die in less than 24 hours. Specifically John tells us that he dies at 3 p.m. The next day. Okay. So the point is. That. As you put the text together, we see Jesus is our Passover. Okay, that's the first point. Jesus is our Passover. They have the Passover meal. He's going to die on Passover. And Paul also makes note of this in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, connecting the Feast of Unleavened Bread to Passover, because Passover was the first day that marked the beginning of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, Therefore purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened. For indeed Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Jesus, he is our Passover. He's the fulfillment of the Passover meal. And there's a lot to that, but specifically, simply, he is the Passover lamb. Meaning, when we're covered with the blood of Jesus spiritually, then death passes over us. Only through Jesus can we be forgiven of sin and experience, enter into eternal life. Just as all the Egyptians that didn't have the blood of the lamb on their doorpost, they died, the firstborns died. So too, if we're not covered with the blood of Jesus that comes through a relationship with Jesus, we will not pass from death to life. 
John the Baptist saw this. He knew this in the very beginning. The Spirit revealed this to him. That's why John says when Jesus comes on the scene, in John chapter 1, verse uh, verse 29, John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. This is the only way that we can be forgiven of our sins. He is the Passover lamb. It's only through the shedding of his blood that we can enter into eternal life. Jesus, he also gives us hope and confidence in this. In John chapter 11, just before he raises Lazarus from the dead, Mary and Martha are distraught. They're upset. Their brother just died. And Jesus makes this claim in John chapter 11, verse 25. It says, Jesus said to her, I'm the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. I am the resurrection, he says. The only way to experience the resurrection to, to experience eternal life is through Jesus. And he says, though he may die, shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe that? He asks her why. Because she must believe this for her to experience the resurrection. And he, she says in verse 27, she said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the son of God who has come into the world. See, Jesus, <clears throat> though he died, talk about that soon he would rise and us believing in him that that sacrifice was sufficient that he was the passover lamb by believing that we're covered with the blood of the lamb and we too will pass from death to life though we will all die unless the rapture happens first uh, though we will die we will live we will experience eternal life the passover wasn't just about the death but the resurrection that would take place you might remember this when we studied the feast of uh, first fruits won't get into it now. Not enough time. Matthew chapter 26, verse 21 says, Now, as they were eating, he said, Assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were exceedingly sorrowful. And each of them began to say to him, Lord, is it I? He answered and said, He who dipped his hand with me in the dish will betray me. Now think about this. The disciples are just told by Jesus that one of them is going to betray them. Now, betray him, sorry. Uh, now, you got to think about their relationship. They're brothers. They've been living together. They've been doing life together. They've experienced miracles with Jesus together and for the last almost three years, depending on which when each disciple came on the scene. And there's different timelines then. But they're not just friends. They're brothers. They're brothers. This is why they're exceedingly sorrowful. And what do they say? Is it I? They're not even thinking that it's, it's, it's one of the other ones. It wasn't like it was obvious that it was Judas. They're not all going like, uh, duh, it's Judas, as we know, as we read the text. That's not what they're thinking. What they're thinking is, how could any one of our brothers betray Jesus? And they were more likely to think, it could be me versus saying it could be Judas, or it could have been Peter, or it could have been someone else. They had so much love for each other. This was so unexpected that they pointed the finger at themselves. Is it I? Am I going to be, because I don't think it's him. I don't think it's John. I don't think it's James. I don't think it's Peter. I don't think it's Andrew. I dirt, I certainly don't think it's Judas. Could it be me? 
And I don't think we really understand the relationship, the dynamic between the disciples. They were like brothers. They couldn't even blame each other. Now, they weren't perfect. They had their issues, right? They were constantly arguing about who would be the greatest in the kingdom, right? So they had some 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 brotherly competition, as anyone knows who has a sibling. There is that competition there, but they would never think that any of them, Either of them, not one of the twelve, would ever betray Jesus Christ. So it says they were exceedingly sorrowful. There's no getting around this situation in a way that's good. This is bad no matter what happens. It's either I'm going to betray Jesus or one of my brothers is going to betray Jesus. This is, this is horrible news for the disciples. So they point their finger at themselves. Now, it's interesting Judas is one of these disciples, right? And he's one of the ones that says, is it I? He knows it's him. He's already taken steps. He already betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. He just hadn't completely sold him out yet. Judas allowed the disciples to have this mentality. He, he allowed them to have the heartbreak of self-condemnation. He, he allowed them to think it could be me. He could have just fessed up and said, guys, it's me. I don't want you to think that it could be you because it's not you. It's me. I'm the one that's going to betray Jesus. And he had so many opportunities to repent. We'll talk about that in a moment. But the point is, we see this deceitfulness with Judas. He's not being honest. We see the selfishness with Judas. He's allowing his brothers to feel a certain way, even though he knows he's the guilty party. But the whole reason why he's doing this is because what? Money. 30 pieces of silver. Literally, he's going to betray Jesus because he loves the cares of the world more than he loves Jesus. Now, the Bible warns us of this uh, many times in several different ways. If you look at the parable of the sower... In Mark chapter 4, the parable of the sower in Mark chapter 4. Now, when we look at the parable of the sower, some people will just think off the bat, okay, this represents um, four categories, 25% of people get saved. There's, But it's not just talking about salvation. Uh, we can identify to all these different uh, types of ground that the seeds sow on, whether it's wayside and it's hard, hard, and, uh, and all the other ones that he mentions. Look at this last one. Before the, 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 the good one that falls on good soil and produces much fruit. It says in Mark chapter 4 verse 18. Now these are the ones sown among thorns. They are the ones who hear the word and the cares of this world. The deceitfulness of riches and the desires of other things enter in and choke the word. And it becomes unfruitful. This seed, it grew. This seed grew and it started having good growth, like from all, uh, all, from all perspectives on the, uh, on the outside looking in, you would look at this person and go, dude, that's a believer. They, they're doing it. They're walking with the Lord. They're producing fruit in their lives on some level. It would appear to be a Christian, but eventually the cares of the world choked them out. And they turn away from the Lord. Now, I'm not specifically talking about salvation. It's hard to say if the person was uh, was saved and walked away. And there's a lot to that and God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. But what I'm getting at is there are so many people that look like they're following Jesus. And at some point in time in their life, 
they leave Jesus because of their love for the world. This was Judas. He looked like a disciple. The other guys didn't point the finger at him. He looked like he was following Jesus. And he was following Jesus on some level. Obviously, his heart wasn't in the right place and he was stealing and things like that, as we mentioned before. But this is a terrifying text when you look at it. Judas himself probably thought before he went to betray Jesus that he's a follower of Jesus. But he wasn't following Jesus completely. He had one foot in and one foot out. And ultimately his love for the world led him to walk away from the Lord. And this happens all the time in the church. Sadly, but truly, I've seen this happen so many different times. Like people, I mean, bro, they're sold out. They're going to be a pastor or that's going to be a a women's ministry leader or that's going to be a missionary. Like, dude, they love the Lord and they know the word and they're serving and they're involved. And then something happens and they walk away it's like what what happened specifically for the cares of the world they love the world too much they love the world too much that they weren't willing to give jesus their all and there came a fork in the road at some point and they said i'd rather have this than this we don't just see that in our lives we also see it in scripture there's a guy named demas that the bible talks about And all the other times that the Bible talks about him, he's a disciple. He's with Paul. He's doing ministry. He's on the mission field. You would look at Demas and be like, you'd probably say, oh, that's a guy that I want to emulate, a guy that I want to follow. But look what happens in 2 Timothy chapter 4. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10, he says, For Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world and has departed for Thessalonica. Demas left Paul, not just Paul, he left Jesus because of his love for the world. The point is, God gives us things like that as warning signs. Yes, we're saved. Yes, we're sealed for the day of redemption. But there's always that pull to go back to the world. And it might not be a complete fork in the road and I'm going to turn from Jesus and I'm just loving the world, but it can even happen on small scales. Uh, Maybe it's, hey, there's this standard that I've set in my life and I've cut this thing out of my life and I want to live fully for the Lord, but then something happens. We get pulled back into some worldly lust, worldly desire, and now we got a foot back in the world. And now something that we said we're never going to do again, we're in compromise in that thing again. And that's the enemy just trying to get us to blow our witness. If the God of this world can pull us back into the world, then we're no longer effective disciples for Jesus Christ. Now, that's the small scale. On the big scale, obviously, Judas is going to make a decision that he can't come back from. His love for the Lord literally leads him completely away from Jesus. Jesus is going to talk about more of that here in a moment. But look what happens back in Matthew chapter 26. Verse 23, he, he answered and said, he who dipped his hand with me in the dish will betray me. Now, we'll look at John's account too. Um, Jesus is making a general statement. They had all dipped their hands in the dish that he dipped his hand in. Okay, and I'll show you John to give us some more clarity of what else happens in this text. The point is that it's someone at this table. It's someone very close to you. The disciples didn't know who it was. He's saying, this is, this is someone that's a good friend. We're all at the same table. And this specifically was a prophecy that had to be fulfilled. If you look at Psalm 41, Psalm 41, verse 9. 
Psalm 41, verse 9. And it's very interesting. As we get closer and closer to the Lord's death and even the resurrection, we see an abundance of Scriptures fulfilled because that was the point. The Lord was fulfilling Scripture. Uh, And it says in Psalm 41, verse 9, Even my own familiar friend, in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. Okay, he's fulfilling this here in this text. This man that he ate bread together, that he was in relationship with, has lifted up his heel against him. He's going to betray him. Now, Jesus was making a general statement here. We see a specific statement made in John 13. If you'll flip there real quick. John 13, so we can kind of put the puzzle together and everything that's happening. In John 13, verse 26, same time period, this is the Last Supper, says, Jesus answered, they asked, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is he to whom I shall give a piece of bread when I have dipped it. And having dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. Now, after the piece of bread, Satan entered him. Then Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. But no one at the table knew for what reason he said this to him. We read that and go, disciples, how did you not know? He said the one that I dipped the bread and give it to him. That's going to be the one. But if you look back at verse 25, it was John that asked him the question. So this appears to what ha- appears to uh, be what have ha- what had happened there. He made a general statement. One of you guys are going to betray me. Um, it's someone who who dipped in the same dish as me. So he's putting them all in that category. Then John, because he's leaning on his bosom, he told him specifically who it was going to be. Okay, so John perhaps knew, but the other disciples they weren't clear. They didn't understand. Okay, that's a way to kind of make sense of it so that we know exactly what's happening here in the text. Regardless, tells them, one of you is going to betray me. We know which one it is. So he get, goes on to talk about this betrayal in verse 24, Matthew 26. The Son of Man indeed goes just, just as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born so we look at that and go wait a minute god knew all along that judas was going to betray him so did god make judas betray him absolutely not this whole dialogue is to give judas an opportunity to repent he gives him an opportunity to repent to the very end now this gets into the conversation of god's sovereignty and man's responsibility and we can only talk about it briefly uh, but this is a hard thing to kind of wrap our minds around where does god's sovereignty meet man's responsibility but even more than god's sovereignty i think we see the eternal character quality of god we have to look at it this way god doesn't operate or doesn't exist within time and space he's involved but he created time and space he exists in the eternal okay meaning god has seen the beginning from the end and the end from the, he's seen it all play out he knows exactly the choices we're going to make he's seen it already It doesn't mean that we don't have a choice. It means because he operates in the eternal that he already knows every single decision we're going to make. It still doesn't mean that he doesn't give us opportunity to make other choices. It just means he knows because he exists in eternity. He knows what we're going to do. He's already seen it happen in the end. He knows it all. So for Judas, he knows exactly the decision that he's going to make, but he's still giving him an opportunity to repent. Judas doesn't have to do this. Jesus just knows 
the decision that Judas is going to make. And that's why he's using such strong words. It would have been better for this man if he wasn't born. I said, wait, Jesus created him. He brought him into life. He knew what he was going to do, but he's still giving them the choice. Judas does not have to betray Jesus. Just Jesus knows exactly what he's going to choose. And this was another opportunity. Uh, Jesus using this, this hard, harsh language to lead Judas to a place of repentance. If you knew you were going to do something and the consequences for that action was, was the Lord saying it would have been better for you not to be born like that. Maybe I shouldn't do this. Okay. Maybe I shouldn't make this decision. Obviously that's not what happens. Judas responds. Look in the next verse, verse 25, then Judas who was betraying him, answered and said, Rabbi, is it I? He said to him, you have said it. Both Jesus and Judas knew that, that it was Judas. Judas knew that it was himself. He already sold him out for 30 pieces of silver. But what Jesus is doing here still is giving him a way out. You have said it. It is you. You still have a chance to turn from your ways. You don't have to do this. We know the end of the story. He's going to do this. Now, Jesus, personally, he'll always give us a chance to turn back from that decision. He'll always give us a chance to to turn from it, to take the way of escape that we don't fall into that situation or that decision that's going to lead us to have consequences that we want nothing to do with. There's always a chance to turn around until you make the choice. Right? And yes, there's forgiveness and all these different things, but up until making that choice that you know you're not supposed to make, there's always a way of escape. And the Bible tells us this in 1 Corinthians 10 13. 1 Corinthians 10 13, it says this No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will make the way of escape that you may be able to to bear it meaning yes we struggle with a lot of the same things different ways different sins regardless it's nothing uncommon to people in the past even people in this present day sin sin but we don't have to do it we don't have to make that choice there's always a way of escape and so often if we open our eyes and look for it we can take the way out judas's way of escape were these harsh words dude There are serious consequences, eternal consequences for making this decision. The Lord will show us the way of escape. Sometimes it's through a phone call in the right moment. Sometimes it's through a text message. Sometimes it's literally a door that opens up. Uh, Other times it might be a person that you run into. Whatever the case may be, the Lord He does what he needs to do because of his faithfulness to prevent us from making those decisions that are going to have tremendous consequences. He doesn't want us to do that. He knows the choices that we're going to make, but he's not making us make those choices. We we still have the opportunity to turn from it. The Lord has given Judas a chance to turn from this decision. Goes on to say, Matthew 26, verse 26. And as they were eating... Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. 
And when they had sung, then they had, when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Okay, let's break this down. This is the Lord instituting communion. We know something else happens at this supper, whether it was during or after. It's hard to tell in John 13. Regardless, Jesus washes the disciples' feet. He washes the disciples' feet. And when you think about it, he washed all the disciples' feet, including Judas. He literally prepared Judas's feet for the walk over to the chief priest to betray him. He knew exactly what what he was going to do and he washed the very feet that would betray him this love this expression of love in the midst of knowing exactly what he was going to do he still loved on him he portrayed this ultimate act of love and service by washing his feet so as he institutes communion says he took the bread he blessed it and he broke it think about this In the midst of everything that's going on, Jesus, knowing the end, knowing that Judas was going to betray him, knowing that the disciples were going to abandon him, knowing that the cross was waiting for him, he institutes communion. He institutes fellowship. He institutes relationship on a level that the world has never seen. Why? That's point number two. Jesus desires communion above all. Jesus desires communion above all. He wants relationship with them. He knows they're going to sin against him. He knows Judas is going to sin, but he still invites that relationship. So that's really what communion is all about, recognizing what Christ did so that we could have relationship. But let's look at it a little more in detail. He takes the bread. He breaks it. He says, take, eat. This is my body. The bread that he takes is referred to as the afikomen. We talked about this when we taught about Passover, uh, but essentially what it was, you would take, you had three pieces of matzah bread stacked on top of each other, unleavened bread, really sinless bread. Okay. That makes sense. So you take the middle one, You would break it in half. You would wrap a piece up in a white cloth. You would hide it for the remainder of the Seder dinner. The other piece you would break and have communion with. You guys would share off of that same piece of bread. This is what Jesus is doing here. It's the afikomen. Now, Jews still do this. I've explained it before. They don't understand what all these three pieces of matzah bread uh, mean. Different traditions believe different things. But we know it's a representation of the Trinity. The only sinless beings ever to ever exist the father the son and the holy spirit unleavened bread sinlessness the middle one was broken he was wrapped in a white cloth and he was buried the second person of the trinity okay um so jesus he's pointing to himself even by breaking this bread he says this is my body that was broken for you take eat now in a traditional Seder uh, meal, uh, I encourage everyone to try to go to one at some point. Maybe we'll have one here one year. Um, uh, I've been praying about that. It's just a, a lot of work. But everything signifies something. Okay, and specifically, traditionally, it signifies uh, either something that had to do with their slavery, the Israelite slavery in Egypt, or um, the beginning of the Exodus, okay, and them leaving uh, Egypt. So Jesus, what he's going to do here is he's going to take uh, old school tradition and mesh it together with new school covenant, if you will. And he's going to redefine some of these things and give the fullness of it. Why? Because he is the Passover. He's the fulfillment of this meal. And if you've ever had a Seder dinner, it's just amazing. It's Jesus. The whole thing's about Jesus. Uh, it's very cool. Hopefully we get to do it sometimes, but that's what Jesus is doing. He's pointing to himself as the Passover lamb and not just that, the fulfillment of tradition. Take, 
eat, this is my body. He goes on to take the cup of wine. He gave thanks, gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you. So he gives thanks as he takes the bread and he takes the cup. And that's really where we get Eucharist from. The Greek word uh, for give thanks or gave thanks is Eucharist. That's why often people call communion Eucharist. There are many different parts of communion. That's the giving of thanks part. And it's really um, the giving of thanks of, of what Christ did so we can have fellowship, koinonia, uh, with him. Now think about this from this perspective, from the Lord's perspective. He's the one giving thanks. Okay, he's the one giving, not the disciples, he's the one that's giving thanks. Why? Because of the opportunity of the crucifixion so that he could spend eternal life with us. It's, he's the one giving thanks, knowing he's going to die the next day. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, Hebrews 12, 2, it says, Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. He endured that cross, he endured that shame. He endured the most brutal beating in history for the joy that was set before him, meaning the coming joy, meaning the joy of spending eternity with us. He gave thanks that he could die for us because what it was going to bring, how much more thanks should we give because he died for us? And that's really the point. If he can give thanks for dying for us, we certainly should be able to give thanks that the Lord died for us. Gratefulness is a huge part of communion. And he says, verse 28, as he drinks the wine, has them, has them drink the wine. For this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Obviously, as he communicates, the wine represents his blood that was shed so that we could enter into the new covenant. Now, this wasn't something that Jesus just came up with in a moment like, oh, I got a good idea. Let's establish a new covenant. No, no. This was the plan from the beginning. In fact, the Old Testament talks about this new covenant that was to come. Uh, many references in the Old Testament to the new covenant, one being in Jeremiah in Jeremiah 31, Jeremiah 31. Verse 33 says, but this is the new covenant that I will make with the house of Israel, meaning they're not under this covenant. Now they will have the opportunity to be under it. After those days, says the Lord, I'll put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother saying, know the Lord. They shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. I will remember no more. He talks about the forgiveness of sins. He talks about this internal transformation. Uh, the, the law is going to be on our mind and in our hearts. He's referencing the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is now our teacher. This is what the new covenant was about. Internal transformation, change of hearts, transformed by the renewing of our mind. It's where God comes and he lives in inside of us it's different than the old covenant we're not just looking at the law and trying to fulfill it no the law is in us in the sense of what god is teaching us the law of love that fulfills all things and he works from the inside out this is the new covenant that the lord was talking about he says hey all those things that you know about the new covenant back then i'm establishing it right now but it came at a cost he said for this is my blood in the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Without the shedding of blood, there is no new covenant. The, the Lord had to shed his blood so that we could enter into this new covenant with him. 
And I want to point out something. Look at the words that he uses here in describing communion. It really describes our relationship with him. It's not just about taking communion uh, uh, when we when we uh, perform this sacred act, which we were, we are going to do here in a little bit. He, he's talking about being in communion constantly. And look what he says. He says, "Take, eat, drink." Those are action words. That's our responsibility. Take why? Because he ain't forcing it down your throat. He's not forcing you to be in relationship. You can take this if you want. I'm not going to make you have this. Eat, drink, that eating, that drinking. When we look at eating and drinking, and Jesus references it so many different times, we can't survive in this world unless we eat and drink. Okay, Um, you might be able to fast for 40 days like the Lord, but once it comes 50, 60 days, you probably aren't going to be here anymore. The, the, The point is, the Lord created our physical bodies to feed off of food and off of drink. What Jesus is trying to tell us is just as you need physical food and physical drink to survive in this world, you need spiritual food and spiritual drink. To, to experience the next world, to experience the abundance of spiritual life, even in this world. Eating and drinking, those are action words. Those are choice words. You can't force food down someone's throat. Okay, I know there's certain circumstances you probably think of, yeah, you could. Well, let me give you one of my, my examples, illustrations. This is recent, so it's fresh. Now, we supplement Jude's diet with formula because he eats like a grown man. I don't know how, where this stuff goes. He's so tiny, but it's, it's crazy. Um, my mom says he has my appetite, but luckily he has Elizabeth's metabolism, so uh, we're good there. Anyways, so we'll give him formula here and there. Now, it happened while Elizabeth was gone at a wedding last weekend uh, in Tennessee. One of her best friends got married uh, that I was watching Jude. Luckily, my parents were here. Um, I ran out of formula, so I had to go get some formula, uh, and I came back to feed it to him, and he was not having it. He, I do not want this. For, he started squealing like he was dying. Literally, like like someone was mur- like I was poisoning him. I could not force this food. To- he would rather starve than eat this stuff. And I'd even wait a little bit late. Nope, he was not having this formula. I couldn't force feed him. He had to take it. He had to want it. So I had to go out in the middle of the night and get other formula. Finally, he took it. But the point is, God refers to us as his children, and he ain't trying to force feed us. He, he wants us to see the benefit of it and take and eat and drink. We need him more than he needs us. He doesn't need us, but we need him. He says, take, eat, drink. This is for you. Communion is for you. It's not for me. I do this with joy because of how it benefits you, the Lord would say. Matthew chapter 26, verse 29. But I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink in uh, it new with you and my father's kingdom. So Jesus is making reference to a celebration that is to come. Uh, for time's sake, I won't get into the details. It's likely the marriage supper of the Lamb that we'll have this Passover meal that's like the true fullness of Passover like we've never seen it in the future. Uh, all those who believe in Him. Then after the Passover, it says they sung a hymn. Now, the hymn that they would traditionally sing is called the Hallel. Okay, it's H-A-L-L-E-L. And it's really a compilation of Psalms 116 to Psalms 118. We don't have time to read all of it, but I want to look at a couple of the things that are said here because it's absolutely fascinating to look at what Jesus is singing in the midst of the crucifixion being right around the corner. So we'll just pull, pull a few verses uh, from each psalm. 
Psalm 116, uh, verse 3. It says, the pains of death surrounded me. Jesus is singing this, okay? The pains of death surrounded me and the pangs of Sheol laid hold of me. I found trouble and sorrow. Then I called upon the name of the Lord. O Lord, I implore you, deliver my soul. Look at verse 8. For you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, and my feet from falling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. I believe, therefore, I spoke. I am greatly afflicted. I said in my haste, all men are liars. What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits toward me? I will take the cup of salvation took the Lord the cup of suffering so that we could have the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord now in the presence of all his people. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Okay, we see references to many things. We can't get into all of it. I'm going to look at another one here in Psalm 117 verse 1. It says, pray the Lord, all you Gentiles, laud him, all you peoples, for his merciful kindness is great toward us, and the truth of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. We see the reference to the Gentiles. Jesus knows he's going to die on the cross. Major uh, invitation to the Gentiles, for the Gentiles to be saved. Later on, fulfilled, beginning to be fulfilled in uh, Acts chapter 10 and 11. Then he goes on to Psalm 118, verse 17. He says, I shall not die, but live and declare the works of the Lord. And the Lord has chastened me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Look at verse 22. The stone which the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. You just see so many references to the gospel and the death and the resurrection and the Messiah, the chief cornerstone. Like Jesus is trying to set the disciples up for success. Once again, they're singing these songs with him, not understanding that he's the fulfillment of all of this. Goes on to say, Matthew chapter 26, verse 31. Then Jesus said to them, all of you will be made to stumble because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. So they have this amazing Passover meal. And then Jesus tells them at the end, all of you are going to be made to stumble because of me. Now, Jesus, he wasn't trying to condemn the disciples. He was giving them a fact, something that he knew was inevitably going to happen. How does Jesus know this? Well, Jesus is fully God and fully man. He knows when we're going to mess up. He knows when we're going to stumble. He knows the, the, the future and the times that we're going to fall short. Point number three, Jesus foresees our shortcomings. Jesus foresees our shortcomings. He told the disciples, he knew the disciples were going to slip up, that they were going to abandon him. He, he knows when we're going to fail. He knows when we're going to fall. And he's there, he'll, he's always there to, to lift us up and put us back on our feet. Now, we can't take this truth of Scripture and say, okay, so I can just go stumble around and I can just do whatever I want. He knew I was going to mess up, so I'll just keep messing up. Because not only does he know when we're going to stumble, he's also able to keep us from stumbling. And he says that in Jude verse 24. He who is able to keep us from stumbling. He knows when we're going to stumble, but he can also keep us from stumbling. If we reach out to him before we fall, he will keep us from stumbling. He will give us the way of escape, as we mentioned. But Jesus, he doesn't just know this because he's all-knowing. He knows this because the scripture said this was going to happen. It says, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. This was a reference to Zechariah 13, 7. 
Uh, essentially, uh, we just see this abundance of scripture that's being fulfilled. Jesus didn't come to destroy the law. He came to be the fulfillment of the law. We see it throughout, especially the end of the Lord's life. All of this was going according to plan. This should have been encouraging for the disciples. Okay, the word's being fulfilled, but just a matter of this, imagine the situation, not understanding everything. Your, 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 your Savior dying, not getting it. But the Lord was giving them this stuff, showing them that it was fulfillment of Scripture so that they'd be encouraged. He gives them more encouragement in verse 32. He says, but after I've been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. He says, yes, all these things are going to happen. I will be crucified. One of you will betray me. The rest of you are going to abandon me, but I will be raised and come back to you. Essentially, he's telling them, there's going to be some bad, happen, bad things that happen before any good things happen. And before the resurrection has to happen, the crucifixion must happen. There is no resurrection without the crucifixion. We don't jump to the resurrection. We've got to face the crucifixion before the resurrection. This is the way Jesus showed us the way through the cross. If we want to experience life, we must experience death. Now, this means two things, of course. We're not going to be resurrected unless the rapture happens first. We won't be resurrected until we die. But this is also practical uh, in, in our spiritual lives that if we want to truly live, we must die we must die to self not physically die putting the old man to death the old sinful habits the old things that are synonymous with the old man if we want to live we must die jesus has given us a pattern here verse 33 peter answered and said to him even if all are made to stumble because of you i will never be made to stumble Jesus said to him, assuredly, I say to you that this night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter doubted the word and the Lord assured him the word is going to take place. It's going to happen. It's going to come to fruition. This is point number four. His truth will always stand against our doubt. His truth will always stand against our our doubt. Peter doubted. The scripture, he doubted what Jesus said, but we see, we know the end of the story, that this scripture is going to be fulfilled. Why? Because Jesus said it would. We can doubt the word all we want, but the word's always going to stand. And the Lord is always going to stand to his guns and what he communicates in the word. If he tells us something, maybe it's like the disciples, you're going to stumble. Hey, the road you're going down is a dangerous road. And we in our pride say, yeah, but I can dibble dabble a little bit. I can go down this road a little bit and it's not going to make me stumble or make me fall or make me fail. I'll be the one that gets away with it. And sometimes the Lord, like he did with the disciples, speaks hard truth truth into our life and we have an opportunity to receive the truth or reject the truth but we know that the lord's heart in communicating truth to us is what to set us free right it's john chapter 8 verse 32 he says and you will know the truth and the truth shall make you or set you free but it's not just knowing the truth it's receiving the truth we can look at the word and say yeah i i I know that's true But until we receive it as truth, not just the word, but the personal things that he communicates to us, we won't be set free. Peter tries to deny the Lord and what he just communicated to him. He tries to doubt the truth, but the truth we see is going to stand. And Jesus makes sure that Peter knows this, verse 34. Assuredly, I say to you that this night... 
before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Jesus stands firm in his truth because he is the truth. He knows the truth. And regardless of our doubt, regardless of our kickback, we're never going to prove the truth wrong. And we can't expect Jesus to change the truth for us. He's not going to change the truth for us. He's going to stick to his guns. He's going to say, this is the truth. You can take it or you can leave it. Peter didn't believe it. So he says in verse 35, Peter said to him, even if I have to die with you, I will deny you. And so said all the disciples. So they're like, Jesus, we don't believe you. That's what they're saying. We don't believe you, Jesus. What you said, we don't believe it. No way. And I'm sure no one's going to betray you any way. What are you talking about? It seems so far off. They thought they were so faithful. They thought they were so loyal. But we see exactly what's going to happen is exactly what Jesus said would happen. Peter, specifically, will deny the Lord three times. But if you look at Luke chapter 22, we get a little, uh, another little piece of this conversation, which I think is crucial. And Luke chapter 22, the same, same story, same context, same timeline. Uh, there's just something else that Jesus says here. In Luke chapter 22, verse 31, and the Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. He's warning Simon. Satan's asking, it's your pride, Simon. It's getting the best of you. Satan is asking to sift you as wheat. He says, but I prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And you, when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. But he said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Then he said, I will tell you, Peter, the rooster shall not crow this day before you will deny me three times that you know me. Jesus was trying to tell him specifically what was going to happen. Ultimately, he was telling him, I know when you're going to stumble. I know when you're going to fail, but I'm going to use your failure to turn it into a future success. And this is the fifth point. Jesus can turn our failures into successes. Jesus can turn our failures into successes. Look at what he says here. He says he's praying for him. He's praying for him. That your faith should not fail, and when you have turned to me, strengthen your brethren. In other words, you're going to walk away. You're going to deny me. This is going to happen. But when you return, hopefully you learn a lesson that not only strengthens your character, but strengthens the whole body of Christ and their character. This is going to be a very hard lesson that you learn, Peter, but eventually you're going to learn it. And I'm going to use this failure not to just bring you success, but the body of Christ's success as a whole. And we get some indication that Peter... Peter learned his lesson. If you look at 1 Peter, Peter writing this, obviously, in 1 Peter chapter 5, 1 Peter chapter 5, look what he says. In verse 6, 1 Peter 5, 6, he says, Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. This is interesting hearing Peter talk about humility at all. When we look at him in the Gospels, humility is the last thing we see. But he's saying, Humble yourselves. He's begging us. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you. Why? Because Peter was always trying to exalt himself. He always wanted to be first. He always wanted to be the greatest. This was a lesson that he learned. Look what it says in verse 7. Casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. 
he makes the connection between humbling ourselves, uh, embracing humility, and, and spiritual warfare, an attack of the enemy. Why? Because he went through it, and Jesus told him he was going to go through it. Hey, Satan is asking you to asking to sift you like wheat, but if you keep being prideful, if you keep making these pride comments, if you keep portraying this character of pride, it's going to happen, and I'm going to let it happen, and I'll use it for your good, but you're not going to like how this goes down. You are going to be humbled, Peter. Humble yourself or I'm going to humble you. And he's going to do it through spiritual warfare in this specific case. So we see Peter, he gets it. Hey guys, humble yourself. Or in other words, if you don't, you're inviting attacks from the enemy because God will sometimes allow those things to happen to teach us the lessons that he needs to teach us. So he used Peter's failure to turn it into a success, not just for Peter, but for the rest of the body of Christ. Strengthen the brethren. That's what his prayer was. This is going to hurt, but I need you to learn this so the rest of the brethren learn this as well. And the Lord, he often uses failures in our life to bring success. Now that doesn't mean that we should just like constantly stumble and constantly fail and yada, 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 keep running our heads into the wall doing the same things over and over again. No, it's just looking at the grace of God that even in our failures, he can use it as success, not just for us, but for other people. For me, there's many things. One being having an addictive past and going that road and living in complete darkness. Had I not experienced those things, those those things weren't good. Had I not experienced those things, there would be certain people that I, it would be hard for me to relate to, hard for me to minister to but god brings me people that have those same past uh, at least similarities so that i can strengthen the brethren and sometimes the lord he does just that he'll use our past failures to bring future success to us and the body of christ see jesus he knew that the disciples were going to fail him. He, they, he knew that Judas was going to betray him. He knew the disciples were going to abandon him. In the midst of that, he establishes relationship. He says, hey guys, I want you to know how much I love you. This is what you're getting ready to do in the next 24 hours. But I want you to know, I love you so much. And the cross is going to be sufficient to forgive you even of abandonment. To forgive you of even turning your back on me. And the cross is an invitation for you to enter into communion in the midst of your shortcomings. In the midst of these situations and scenarios where you stumble. God knows. He knows when we're going to mess up. He knows when we're going to fall short. It doesn't surprise him. It's not like, oh my gosh, they actually did that. It doesn't surprise. He always invites us back with open arms he's able to keep us from stumbling but he also knows when we're going to stumble and if we fail if we fall short he can use it for success but don't take that and say well i'm just going to keep failing that's not the heart he wants the grace that he bestows on us to teach us to live a certain way and we see the abundance of god's love and grace in the midst of this text he's trying to establish communion relationship in light of the future shortcomings that the disciples would experience. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for your strength and our weakness, God, that despite the fact that, that there are times in our lives where we abandon you on some level, where, where we're not fully following you, where we're not being 100% obedient to you, Lord, that you still establish communion with us then, that you want the relationship with us always, that it's, that it's your, your greatest desire um, uh, to, to be in relationship with us. 
Lord, and we just pray, um, God, that, that your love, your grace would teach us what it's supposed to teach us, that we wouldn't take advantage of it, Lord, but we would uh, allow it to change us from the inside out, that we would uh, not take light the ability to, to, to worship you and have communion with you and, and all the things that you've done for us, recognizing that uh, it costs you everything, that, that, that we could uh, be in relationship with you, Lord. So um, we, just, we just love you so much because you first loved us. In your name, amen.